Hey there, it's Mike Stelzner. Before we start today's show, depending on when you're listening to this, it is the end of 2018, and you're probably trying to make some decisions about what to do in 2019. If you've been on the fence about social media marketing world, I would encourage you to try to take that business right off and get your ticket to the conference because the prices just keep going up and up. We are very excited about some major sessions and keynotes, and I just encourage you to check out the incredible lineup of talent. Visit socialmediaworld19.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today's show is sponsored by Social Media Marketing World 2019, and today I have a slightly different show for you. I'm going to be joined by Jay Akunzo, and we're going to explore how to make better decisions using unconventional methods. Now, you are probably making decisions about 2019 right now and how you ought to change, and I think you're going to resonate with a lot of what Jay talks with me about. By the way, if you want to reach me, you can email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. And I want to give a quick shout out to all my fellow Christians who are out there. I wish you a blessed Christmas. And to everyone listening, we wish you a happy new year. And now on to today's brand new discovery. Helping you stay alive in the social jungle. Here is this week's survival tip. This week, I'm joined by Eric Fisher with a brand new discovery. What'd you find, Eric? I found something that every marketer needs, which is an emoji builder. (laughs) An emoji builder. Tell me more. Well, in the world of social media, we've talked about the benefits of connecting with your audience using uh, emoji and the emotional uh, power that that has. And so I found an emoji builder. And what this is, simply put, you know the visual style that's there for emojis in general with, with you know the yellow faces and you can slap different smiles and right. noses and different things like, like that on it. Um, it's like a cross between that. And remember when the Wii first came out and you could make your me and kids and adults, for that matter, spent hours making them look just like them? It's a cross between that and emojis. So So are you telling me you can make your own like bearded emoji if you wanted to? See, that's the thing that's missing because I don't see beards in here, but I do see like sunglasses and all the different like all the different aspects of like. So in other words, imagine being able to say, here are my like three favorite emojis face faces wise Uh, and customize them, huh? Pull it. Yeah. Like you can composite them all into one. And that's that's the benefit here. So I've got like a purple faced uh, I'm staring at a purple faced guy uh, with horns with sunglasses and like big teeth smiley. And that's like three emojis in one. So, so uh, a crazy question. What are you outputting? You're not outputting text. I would imagine you're outputting no. a graphic, right? No. Yes. You're actually act- uh, you're actually outputting a PNG file. So it's not a true emoji, but right. you could use this to, uh, you know, in your marketing stuff, create specific and, you know, remixed emojis and then use those images uh, to slap them into that. Interesting. And if it's transparent PNG and you're yeah. savvy, you could probably layer this over a photograph inside of Photoshop or something uh, like yes, that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So how do we, where do we find this thing? 
So uh, the URL to find this and, and go play with it is uh, a little bit complicated, but here goes. It's phltn.com slash emoji builder. And if you miss that, we'll have it in the show notes. Yes. Uh, does it cost anything? Is it an extension it, or how, how no, does it work? It's, it's free and it's web-based. You just go and just play around. It's fun. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for sharing that brand new find. You're welcome. Now for today's interview with Jay Akunzo. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today I'm excited to be joined by Jay Akunzo. If you don't know who Jay is, he runs Unthinkable Media, a business that specializes in creating B2B documentaries. He's also a popular speaker and host of the Unthinkable podcast. His brand new book is called Break the Wheel, Question Best Practices, Hone Your Intuition, and Do Your Best Work. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to have you on, and some of you might recognize Jay's voice. Uh, A couple years ago, Jay helped me produce some documentaries for social media marketing world. And I'm really excited today to not talk about documentaries, but instead to have Jay on the show to explore how to make smart marketing decisions in unconventional ways. And I would definitely uh, define you, Jay, as an unconventional thinker. (laughs) Now, before we go there, I would love to hear your story. Uh, Start wherever you want to start. How in the world did you get here? And like I said, start wherever you want to start. I'm doing exactly what I thought I would do when I was age 12. No, absolutely not. Yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I always wanted to tell stories. And so the fact that storytelling has become a little bit full of jargon or it's a little buzzy is kind of disheartening. But I always want to tell emotional stories for a career. And I actually I pointed that at first at sports journalism. So I worked for a number of print publications in Connecticut, small and large, uh, and and then went in-house at ESPN into their communications and PR department. And ESPN showed me that you can use your writing skills and your creativity in a business context, not just media uh, and, you know, writing articles. Uh, Real quick, how how long ago was that? Just to set some context. Oh, yeah, this was 2008. Okay, so you were working for ESPN and then- And the economy, obviously, in 08, as a lot of people remember, was, let's say, not good. Yeah. Right? So I ended up uh, leaving ESPN because I didn't like where media was heading. They weren't paying well. I also thought maybe print wasn't necessarily the safest industry to be a part of uh, because that would have been my move is to be a print columnist. Hmm. And I got a job at, uh, at Google. And I was a digital media strategist. So my job was basically to advise brands and agencies how to use Google AdWords. And I, I got to be honest, I really hated it. And, Were you one of those um, kind of guys yes. that whenever a new person would like sign up, that you would be one of those people that would reach out and try to get them to kind of get acclimated to the tool? Yeah, you know, I, I loved customer interaction. That was great. And the wrapper around the job was very interesting because the culture there is so strong. Uh, I met my wife there, so you can't really have a greater return on investment for any job. Right. And uh, But I, what I realized is it's a perfect example, actually. I was watching a YouTube video one day and a pre-roll ad started to play and I was so frustrated and and I think I was actually watching it with like a bunch of friends and I had told them how great the video was. And so I was like so frustrated and worse, they were frustrated because I'd hyped this video and I actually recognized which colleague of mine had sold this advertiser and running a pre-roll ad. And I was like, oh man, I said to myself, damn it, Eric, because Eric was creating this terrible experience. And then, uh, and then I realized like, oh wait, I have the same job as Eric. 
which means that I'm perpetuating frustrating experiences in people's worlds. And I, I didn't want to be the ad. I wanted to be the content behind the ad. Hmm. I wanted to be the experience. Um, and so ever since that moment, I, you know, I quit Google. I went to work for several startups, including HubSpot, where I led content teams. And then uh, my last job in-house was actually venture capital. So I did the big startup, small startup, public company. And then I was like, well, I have nowhere else to go in tech. And I got hired to a VC that invested in tech companies. Wow. And you ran went all brand. over the place, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I moved around a lot. Yeah. And, but, but that, that one job really opened my eyes, Mike, to just the power of serialized content, original series, because I was able to launch my own podcast for the firm. And I decided after three years there to branch out and become a full-time speaker and maker of shows. And so that's where I split my time today. I, I'm half on the road speaking and the other half I spend with B2B clients making podcasts and video documentaries. Well, I remember because I think I would must have been one of your first, um, once you went on in your own, one of your first customers, I think, wasn't I? Because I remember you had just left and it was it was in the fall season of whatever year it was. And, um, you helped me document some of these stories that we were creating for social media marketing world. It was such a cool experience. I think it was a couple of years back. How long have you been off on your own now? Oh my goodness. Uh, probably two and a half years at this point. Yeah. So that's so cool. Yeah. All right. So, well, awesome story. Um, now the next question is the concept, uh, let's transition into the book. Like, sure. um, it's called break the wheel. Um, where, what was the idea behind the book? So, I mean, this is something that my brain wasn't prepared for with my Google experience where I thought I should love it and then didn't. But that's just one little example of this problem we all face in business, which is, you know, I think everybody would get on board with this phrase, Mike, which is finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. Mm. And then there's this cliff we drop ourselves off because it's like, well, how do we do that? We know how to find best practices, but how do we either make the best practice work for us or more importantly, make better decisions in our own specific context. And you and I have bonded over the years about how a lot of times best practices devolves into cheat sheet. But what I want to help people do with this book is essentially make the best possible decisions in their specific context, regardless of the trend, regardless of the precedent, regardless of the best practice. And it's kind of fascinating because you were in the business of following the best practice, I would imagine, when you were at HubSpot. For many years. Right? Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. And well, there's a reason I'm not there anymore. Yeah, and creating all this content. And, and you know, to be honest, I'm in the business of trying to at least help people figure out not necessarily the best practice, but where the trends are going. And then a lot of them, of course, um, do glob onto these things. And, and sometimes you can be like a reed in the wind. And what I love about the concepts that we're going to talk about today really is like how to make smart marketing decisions, not based on what other people are doing necessarily, but some other concept that we'll explore today. So, um, so my, my first, you know, I guess question on this topic is how do we even know as marketers, whether or not we should keep doing what we've been doing or mm. whether we should be doing something different? So I think, I mean, that's, the crux of the argument. It doesn't matter if you'd use the best practice or you don't. What matters is whatever path you pick, it works really well for you. So how do you tell when it's actually time to pick up your head and explore something new? It's a really difficult decision. And, uh, and actually, I can give you a little exclusive nugget here. This didn't make the book. This is a study that came out of New York University, I think two months ago, but it didn't make the manuscript of my book. Uh, this study explores that exact question, and it's fascinating. 
So there's this psychological concept called the foraging choice. It actually didn't have a name. I just I named it that because I needed a handle foraging. to stick in my brain. Foraging? The foraging choice. Okay. Imagine being an animal and you're like foraging for food like you're a squirrel in a tree. Okay. So what the study looks at is how very many decisions we make in the workplace and in life resemble an animal foraging where you have to make this decision between exploiting your existing position or exploring new possibilities. Mm. So that's exactly what you were talking about is like, how do you know if should we keep beating the same drum or trying incremental changes or should we say, you know what, it's time to experiment or try something wholly new. And so that's what this study looked at. And essentially what it found is, you know, pretty obvious to people in business. But when you're under a high stress situation, whether it's one moment or it's just this lurking feeling that things are changing or you might not get your results, what you tend to do, like the impetus in our brains is to cling to the existing position and keep exploiting it. And, and this to me was revelatory because I think it explains why a lot of people like on social media, for example, they try to keep finding the, the hack on like LinkedIn is a really good example. We're living through this time where people keep at mentioning 25 individuals, not because they really want conversation, but because they want to feign engagement and then have the algorithm flag their content higher in the feed and to more people. It, it, they're looking for ways to game that system because I don't think they're bad actors. I think they're stressed out. Because at any moment, that can change, and then you can get no results from LinkedIn or any social network. And so what the study found is if you're going to make decisions when you're nervous, when you're stressed, the most important thing you can do is first study your context and then make better decisions. And we don't do that, right? We look at what an expert says worked or what we did in the past and try to repeat it. And so how do you study your context? That became like the exploration I went on in this book. This is really interesting because, you know, there's five people in my marketing department and whenever I call everyone in my office and I say it's not working, their immediate response is to, is to say, we need new ideas. And I often say, what, what, hold on a second. You know, like, like what I mean by new ideas is we need to go out and do this and that and all these other things that we've never done before. And a lot of times I say, well, are you sure um, are you sure we just need, are you sure we don't just need to maybe try what we just did a little differently to make it better? For example, email marketing, right? Email marketing is one of the most effective things historically for us, right? And it gets a little harder every month, it seems, because of algorithms and spam filters and all these kind of things. And at a certain juncture, you know, it's the struggle. Like, do we give up on email marketing? Do we keep doing it because it worked for us in the past? Do we explore something totally different like messenger bots? And, um, what I'm hearing you say is that this, this, this concept is you got to step back and have context before you make a rash decision. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fundamental change here is we like to act like experts in marketing and experts care about absolutes or theory. They want the right answer up front to then act. But I think the most powerful thing we can be is not an expert, it's an investigator. Mm. And the hallmark of an investigator is you ask really good questions about your environment. And so, you know, the, the analogy I would use is it's like setting up a mental filter for yourself or your team. You know, you ask all these questions in your situation, and when you root out the answers, you then say, okay, if that's our understanding of this situation or our context, then any other best practice or idea or precedent, those are no longer answers or blueprints. They're just possibilities. 
And the premium skill is for us to vet those possibilities using what we know to be true about our situation. And what I try to impart in the book is a framework you can use to know your situation before you decide. Awesome. Um, and we're going to get into some of that in a little bit. Um, let's presume we have done some sense of investigation and we're not just flying off the hip here. Um, and we, we do know that something must change. Um, we know we need to go down a new route or try something different. Um, how do we, how do we choose, you know, what to do? How do we, if we have a couple of options before us, you know, how do we not get stuck in a trap? If you will? <laughs> I think it, well, I think it's really important to first identify what's causing us to, to make poor choices. And if you know them, if you can name them and, and make them overt and obvious, all of a sudden they cease to be as difficult to deal with, right? Because they become obvious to you. Right. And so there's, if you think about marketing, there's really three ways we make decisions and each can be pretty dangerous in many cases. So the first, you know, we call these like, uh, uh, you and I talked about like how these are like dangerous routes to go down. So the, yeah. let's call them the danger routes. Yeah, exactly. So danger route number one is you make a decision based on the, the best practice that carries the most weight in your mind, AKA the conventional wisdom. And this is probably the most prevalent way we make decisions because it's sort of like relies on tried and true. Um, and I everybody else I is doing it. This. Therefore I should do it. Is that kind of yeah, what you're saying? Yeah. I, I wish I knew who said this. I, I I'm going to fail to give this person credit, but you know, the old saying that insanity is doing the same way, this doing the same things the same way and expecting different results. Different result. Yeah. yeah. That's Einstein. I think in marketing, that's Einstein. doing the same things the same way and expecting the same result. That is insanity, right? Cause the context <laughs> always changes. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's Einstein. So, so uh, right, right. So it's an evolutionary Einstein there. So, uh, so yeah, conventional so wisdom problem. is a danger route. Why? Well, what what all of best practices miss is you know what works for us, aka the us, right? So they miss crucial variables about our situation. They miss you, your team. Like you don't exist anywhere else in the work. You're the biggest variable in this whole equation. They miss your specific audience and what you, especially as a social media marketer, should know about your specific audience. And they also miss, and this is the biggest pushback I get as a speaker when I present new ideas, they miss your resources, right? It's like the whole, but my boss, but my budget, but my timeline, but my goals. Mm. And like, so, so those are the things you need to master first is like us, our audience and our resources, AKA the three pieces of your context. And, and then you can say, okay, well, this conventional wisdom because it misses those details, does it make sense anymore or not? Perfect. So danger route number one is following conventional wisdom. Totally. And uh, danger route number two would be we glom onto the new trend. So it's still a best practice, but now this is the best practice that professes to be the latest and greatest. And same deal. It's like doing whatever's most common doesn't guarantee you're making the best choice for you. Doing whatever is newest doesn't make doesn't guarantee you're doing what works best for you. And uh, I actually have a story from Google about why this this like hit me like a sack of just bricks to the face when That's I was here. working at Google. So uh, you've heard of site links, I'm guessing, on search uh, ads? Site links. Is that Remind me what they're, that is. Yeah, they're the extra headlines you'll see below the main one on a search ad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what that is. So, okay. So in 2009 is when we rolled out that feature when I was at Google. And Google used one benchmark to convince advertisers to switch this thing on, which was 30%, because that's what they found in testing. Ads with site links get 30% more clicks than ads without them. So the logic is really simple, but it's very faulty. The simple logic is more clicks equals more traffic, more traffic equals more business. 
but the business part is not guaranteed. The only thing guaranteed in that equation is that Google would make more money on the clicks. Mm. And so we can, in months, like it took months, not years, in months, we convinced millions of advertisers to switch on this feature. And then because I was managing small business accounts, we got bombarded with complaints because we increased their clicks, but their websites weren't enabled to capture more business. So they had no more budget left and they were pissed off. Got it. And, and I was like, wow, so why is this like a sudden trend or a best practice? It's because Google wanted it to be. And, and the, this it, is, it was horrifying. It, and this is where I think the danger of a, a study or a quote could really go off the deep end, right? Like someone does a study, finds one little thing, like 30% more, and everybody just says, well, I don't know any of the data behind it, but it must be true. And then boom, all of a sudden they put a lot of energy in it and then they realize, uh-oh, maybe that's not true for me. This is why stats like what's the ROI of social media marketing or Twitter or what's the ROI of content marketing? Here's a data point. Makes it's That's an insane way to justify doing anything. It's just way too broad and generic. Like the, all a best practice really is, is what works in general, but you don't operate in a generality. Okay, folks, you're hearing it. Imagine those danger signs in your head whenever you see a trend or conventional wisdom. Think twice. What's the last one? So the last one is... What are the most fun things to observe if you're on the outside and what are the most painful things to experience if you're on the inside, which is that we thrash. We make decisions based on no plan at all, right? It's tactic over strategy, which is a major, major theme in lots of marketing organizations. And it, it snowballs on us. So, you know, for example, I worked for a very small startup, uh, about 12, 15 people when I joined. I think it capped out at 30 before it went under. And we had a small marketing team and I watched this pattern and I'm going to lay this pattern out and I guarantee you, your listeners will be like, oh my gosh, I've experienced that too because it has to do with social media. So we were, we opened a Twitter account and the first question on people's mind was what's the best time to tweet? So then we looked at Google and the top result said 3 p.m. So we tweeted at 3 p.m. Except the problem was now that that study was out there, guess what happens? That's not <laughs> everybody the best else time to tweet anymore. <laughs> yeah, because everybody else tweeted at 3, right? Right. Right. But we didn't have time to figure that out because we also had to care about email marketing. But then somebody sent us an email from some expert saying email marketing was dead. And we were like, wait, that makes no sense. But we didn't have time to interpret that expert's words because here comes Snapchat. And now we have to jump all over Snapchat because our boss emailed us and they were like, hey, what's our Snapchat strategy? <laughs> and and we, had, we had no idea, but we jumped all over Snapchat. And then Instagram back then got bought by Facebook and they just started copying everything Snapchat was doing. So we were also on Instagram at the very same time. And then, uh, but, but we were really concerned with was it was the era of video. And so we were creating a ton of video with no idea why. It was just because it was the era of video. Squirrel. But today it's now the era of voice, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and voice is eating the world. And, and so we can't forget about voice. And so now I'm sitting here, I'm looking at this trend and I'm just like, hey, Alexa, please punch me in the face. <laughs> it's like, this Look, never I, ends. I, I'm going to be saying, I'm guilty of this. Okay. Like I do this, I've done this and I probably will continue to do this. Why, why, why do we, why do we jump on these tactical things? <laughs> so what's, is there some sort of DNA problem in humans or something or what is it? Absolutely not. So there's this another psychological study uh, and trend that I picked up on doing the research for the book is called Pike Syndrome. And so Pike Syndrome is a feeling of powerlessness after repeated failure hmm. uh, or, or a repeated uh, stress. So you're sensing a theme, I'm sure, about when we make decisions as marketers, we're doing so out of a place of stress. We're reactive. Um, Pike Syndrome is an odd name. So I think maybe it deserves to explain like why Pike it comes from a science experiment where scientists dropped a pike in a fish tank 
and then a bunch of minnows. And predictably, the pike ate the minnows right away. But then something really interesting happened. They tried lowering the minnows into the tank surrounded by some glass. And the pike, because he couldn't see the glass, would just smash up against it over and over again. And after a time, he conditioned himself not to eat those minnows because when they removed the glass, the minnows could swim freely all around the tank undisturbed by the pike. And so this explains a concept called learned helplessness, now known as pike syndrome. And I think we suffer from a degree of learned helplessness in our work because from the moment we're taught there's a right and a wrong answer, and this happens in school for a lot of people, you then get out into the working world where there is no one right way, but we still search for the right way. And on the internet, especially in B2B, there are endless amounts of experts saying, here is the right way, mm-hmm. right? It's marketers marketing to other marketers. And, and so what could we possibly offer, Mike, in that whole scheme of experts and gurus and trends? We're, we've learned helplessness. And so we go seeking our answers out there and we trend hop or we cling to whatever a guru says we should do because what could we possibly offer? But I would argue just like the pike, who had little morsels of goodness swimming in front of his nose, we have little details of context swimming in front of us every day, but we don't reach out and use that and inform our decisions with that. And that's the goal. That's a great setup for the next question, which is, okay, you know, we fall into these danger routes of conventional wisdom and trend hopping and tactics over strategy. Um, And, you know, the real question is how do we make smart, better decisions. The good news is Jay's here to help. So Jay, how do we make better decisions? How do we not become like the pike in the fish tank? So there's one skill we need to master and hone more as marketers today, which is we need to ask better questions. So the shift here back to the idea of being an investigator instead of an expert is to know the right questions to ask ourselves and our teams instead of starting where we usually start, which is seeking the right answers of somebody else. And in the book, I lay out six, but I'd I'd like to give you two because I think they're the two most powerful and and probably most commonly overlooked by social media marketers in particular. Okay, before before you answer, before you give us those questions that we're going to talk about, I want you to talk about the why. Why is it important to ask questions? So when you think about what an investigator is good at, it's not just asking questions, it's prioritizing evidence. And, you know, when we make decisions based on absolutes or theory, we're getting to this really dangerous game of either A, being derivative because we're copying what someone else is doing. So it's not the best practice, it's the average approach. Or B, we're really omitting the need to test and experiment, to to base whatever the investment is on real results and not just gut feel. You know, even though I write about intuition in the book, I'm not writing about gut feel. Um, I am writing about the ability to ask questions and be more critical about your environment. And so that's the missing piece, Mike. It's you don't use in, you don't use evidence when you make decisions. You're using too much theory or too many absolutes. That that's the why. So you're really teaching us to think and utilize some of those, you know, powerful things at the top of our head, <laughs> you know, to, to make well-informed decisions. And by asking the right questions, we can um, be in a good spot to be able to make decisions that will actually move us in the direction we need to go. Is that what I'm hearing you say? 
Totally. Like, you know, we get on stages as speakers and we tell stories about some business visionary. Like, here's this case study I dug up. And the problem is I think we think those visionaries saw the future, but I really think that they just see the present more clearly. Mm. Like, they are looking at what's right in front of them, unlike the pike, unlike us. And they're like, okay, so if that's what's happening today, then, then this is what we should do. And what we often do is we base our work today on something learned yesterday. Because that's what a, a best practice is basically a lagging indicator. It's not a leading one, right? So what, when you have evidence, you remove that that clouded judgment. It's kind of like someone coming from another planet and landing on the planet Earth and going into a library and taking books that were written in the 50s and then leaving, right? And just assuming that's the way Earth is. <laughs> <laughs> totally, right? It really, it can be that bottled up. I mean, there, there's a great example in the newspaper business where I came from where some people may have seen this, but in, in like 2000, 2002, a British paper called The Independent actually switched from the normal newspaper size pages to like really small tabloid size pages. And everybody laughed at them. Uh, but what everybody didn't realize was that these these bigger pages came from this tax that the British government imposed on newspapers in the 1700s. And, and basically, they, they wanted to tax people on the number of pages in their paper. So the publishers just increased the sizes of their pages. Like, that's wow. why it was the best practice. It's ludicrous to continue to make decisions based on that. That's fascinating. Okay, cool. That's awesome setup. So let's get into a couple of the questions or whatever, you know, the pro yeah, how, yeah, how do we make better decisions? Take us back there again. Sure. Let's go back to Pike syndrome, this idea of, you know, us seeking our answers out there because some expert, some guru knows better than we do or past precedent. Like it's not us that can make the, de the decisions. It's them or him or her. So when we have Pike syndrome, it's because we feel overwhelmed. It's this learned helplessness. And the solution isn't to say, well, I'm going to be a rebel and everyone is doing it this way. I'm going to rip the bandaid and run the other direction. That's not the solution because we have real results and we live in the real world here. And actually, sometimes the conventional route might actually work for you. So it's not just about being a rebel to overcome this learned helplessness. What you can do, however, is you let the audience be the guide. So if you're overwhelmed or you're faced with too many choices, which I think we all are, let the customer become the guide. And so there's two questions we can ask to do that. And the first is something we don't spend much time investigating, which is a huge mistake, which is what is your first principal insight about your customer? What most people and marketers do is they make decisions based on the convention or the analogy or the superficial. So they're like, we sell pillows, and so we sell a better pillow, and here are the features of that pillow. But nobody buys a pillow, they buy a better night's sleep. And so you should be marketing a better night's sleep. And that's, that's the first principle of what people are actually after. So when you have a first principle, you're like, oh, okay, this is actually what customers want, so I should market that. But the problem is we don't talk to customers. We look at experts or we get stuck in our echo chamber, and that's not a hard switch. Just go talk to more customers and let them be the guide if you're feeling overwhelmed. So that's the first question, Mike. It's what is my first principle insight? In other words, what is the customer really after that everybody else is overlooking? What is the customer really after that everyone is overlooking? And how do you get at that? You just ask them? So this, that, then you ask the second question, which is, who are my true believers? Okay. And so this is a question you should ask because it identifies a small number of people reacting in a big way. In other words, it's like you're looking for resonance, not reach. And I think so often we look at the big top line numbers to justify what we do. We want reach, 
But really the trick in modern marketing is to care about resonance first. It's a stronger foundation because then the reach comes after that. So if you're running a test and you're measuring the results, you're, you shouldn't be comparing it to the tried and true to say, oh, look, it beats that old playbook. What you should be looking for is a few people are saying with more passion, oh my gosh, yes, I loved this, whatever this is. And if you're not able to trigger that, then you're probably not on the right path. You haven't put your finger on that first principle in reality. So you got to go and talk to more customers or you got to launch more experiments or maybe publish some more content that takes strong stances on things until you really nail what it is that they want. Perfect. All right. What else do we need to know about making better decisions? I think it's worth knowing the, the third and final barrier to doing that. So we talked about two, the foraging choice which is a you heard it here first exclusive, and then the Pike syndrome, which was in the book. But there is another psychological barrier for us making decisions in the book, and we can similarly ask a certain type of question to overcome it. So maybe that's worth going through that one, Mike. Sure. So who hasn't heard the phrase, why do we do it around here? I don't know. That's how we do things around here, right? Like, why are you making that decision? I don't know. That's what we do. That's the playbook. It's the, it's, the, uh, you know, it's the tried and true. It's the blueprint. It's the ultimate guide. It's whatever. And there's a reason for that. It's called cultural fluency. Okay. So this is uh, from the University of uh, – or DePaul University in Chicago. A man named Jim Morey, psycho a psychologist out there, studied what happens when the world unfolds as we expect. So if you're in a routine, if you're in a rut, if things are on repeat, how does that change your behavior? And if you introduced some kind of different or unusual or uncomfortable variable, how does that change your behavior? And so what he found was if things unfold as you expect, it's a regular day, you are approaching the channel the same way you always have or whatever, we tend to make mindless decisions. We don't inform our decisions with any new context or information. We get lazy. However, if you introduce just one detail that's slightly off, suddenly it snaps your brain out of this mindless rut and you make more critical, critically informed decisions. You're a critical thinker instead of a mindless one. And in marketing, I think we can ask two questions to get better at this. The first is, what are my constraints? And the second is, how might I, might I expand? Okay. So, Mike, you've, you've probably, you're a creative guy. Uh, when someone says creative freedom, how do you feel emotionally? Is that something you're looking, you know, favorably on creative freedom? Uh, you know, it's a wonderful question. I, being a guy who was an art director, um, I I struggle a little bit with it because I want when I'm art directing people, I want to have feedback on the creative process. And sometimes when people say I want creative freedom, it means they don't want any feedback. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because that's exactly how I felt probably until well, probably until now. Yeah. Um, Totally. So like creative freedom is this ideal, I think, you know, we put it up on a pedestal and right. we think that people who do great work have more freedom than us. Right. What Jim was able to show with a very simple experiment actually on his family and friends, which is kind of ridiculous, is that when you introduce constraints and then you change certain variables, you start to make better, more creative decisions. So what he did was basically, if this guy ever invites you to a family barbecue, say no, because he decided to experiment on his family and friends at his mom's barbecue. Oh, okay. And uh, it was 4th of July, and he decided to break up his family into two groups. One group, he gave a set of white plates before they went to the buffet, and the other group got a set of 4th of July plates, so fireworks and flags and that kind of stuff. Okay. And he then weighed how much food they took at the end of the line. 
And when he weighed the white plates, they took significantly less food than the festive plates. Because in his words, it's culturally fluent to just gorge yourself on the 4th of July. Was this party on the 4th of July? Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> so he was able to show like basically, okay, you just go with the flow because there's no detail. There's no constraint. There's no variable that I've introduced to make you think more critically. But the people at the white plates, maybe some consciously, because it was a little bit off, a little bit different than everybody else, they saw what they were doing more clearly. They took less food. So okay. later in the year, he was like, I'm going to put this to the test. I'm going to try a new variable. And he gave half these people white plates at a Labor Day picnic. And then the other half, he gave Halloween plates on Labor Day. And so the very out of place ghosts and pumpkins sort of were jarring to those people. And those people took significantly less food than the people with the white plates. So this whole idea of like when we go with the flow, when things unfold as we expect, is that we make mindless decisions. But if you introduce some kind of small variable, like for example, you're a leader of your team and you're like, I'm going to introduce a new constraint to your work. We have this deadline or we have this new goal or we have this new big idea or campaign slogan or whatever. Now you have to think more critically. And so in this way, constraints are actually your strengths when you're trying to make better decisions. Hmm. All right. Well, let's summarize where we are so far at a high level, you know, to the bigger question, which is how do we make better decisions? What have we, what have we summarized what we've talked about thus far? So we tend to try to do our best work by looking at best practices. That's where we begin our conversation. But best practices omit crucial variables about your context. So the key is to just know your context better and use that as a filter to make decisions, whether or not you throw out the best practice, use part of it, or use all of it. And so the first step into knowing your context is to become an investigator asking really good questions. But the barriers in front of you are these psychological barriers, you know, the, the danger routes, the reason we glom on to the convention or the trend, or we put tactics over strategy and devolve into chaos. So if we can look those psychology or psychological barriers in the eye and then use a couple of questions to break them down, to think more critically. Now on the back end, we're like, okay, I understand myself and my team. I understand my customers, my audience, and I understand the resources, my constraints. Now that's my decision-making filter. Now it's sort of like an instant clarity generator that I can use to compare and contrast or sort of press through this filter any idea, any best practice, any new trend. So you can say with confidence it is or it is not right for us. I think it would be really helpful if you could give an example um, I don't know. And, and there might be more to this equation than, and you may not quite be done, but it would be really interesting to take an example and kind of push it through this process so people can understand it. Let's do it. So my favorite on social is Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Is that a, is that a handle you follow at all? Like on Twitter? I, I'm familiar with the brand. I don't follow them on Twitter, but I'm sure I could, I could contextualize what, what, you know, I think I've, everybody probably knows them. So let's, yeah, let's hear it. Sure. So a great, actually a great guest for even for your show, Lisa Schneider is their chief digital officer. And when she was hired, I think it was like 2014, 2015, the team was just automating their Twitter account. So in the morning they would post a word of the day and that night a quiz. And that was it. And she said she had no idea why. And they were bland and predictable. But internally the team was really funny and witty and warm. And none of that was actually getting into their marketing. And so she saw this opportunity. Now, what most leaders would do in her shoes is they'd say something like, uh, let's grow our Twitter followers X percent, or let's launch this campaign. And it sort of like runs from this date to this date. You kind of anchor somebody to 
a metric or a timeline. You set up a traditional goal for the team. Right. It's like a mile marker. But unfortunately, as we've talked about all these psychological issues, when you introduce stress, people are more likely to cling to the proven or cling to the convention. They don't really investigate. And so a goal, I think, actually in some ways is detrimental to our success if we're trying to do something new and different because it incentivizes at all cost behavior to reach that output, to reach that number. Okay. So what Lisa did was instead she said to her team, let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. And that provided this sort of anchor, I call it an aspirational anchor in the book, that combined two very powerful and specific things about her context with her team. Number one was their intent for the future, and number two was some kind of dissatisfaction with the way they were working today. So in other words, it focused the team on the behavior change they needed to go exploring, to do something better, to question best practices, instead of clinging to where they were. Let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. So I'd ask people listening, the first step in this equation to know yourself, what is your aspirational anchor, your intent for the future, and some kind of hunger you have today? So what Lisa decided to do with her team was every conversation they had internally on Slack, for example, that people were like really, really passionate about, she would ask them to create content around that and put it out into the world. And one of their first and most famous was, is the hot dog a sandwich? I'd actually ask you that question, Mike. Is the hot dog a sandwich in your mind? <sighs> no, it's not. <laughs> right. So I am a fervent defender that the hot dog is not a sandwich. But Lisa and her team published a blog post, looked at the dictionary definition, and on Memorial Day weekend a couple of years ago, they declared that the hot dog is a sandwich. Interesting. And the internet lost its mind. Would like they say a corn dog is a sandwich? <laughs> everything that's surrounded by bread. So maybe not a corn dog. Ooh, interesting. Because it's not two pieces of bread. That's the, maybe that's the, the next, uh, next movement for them, is, it a, is the corn dog a sandwich? Uh, but, but Lisa used this statement, this sort of aspirational anchor, an exercise in self-awareness, to inspire her team to insert who they are into their work. Mm. Because that was totally absent. They were doing something that was a best practice, automating away pithy content on social, but they weren't using the unique variable or the unfair advantage they had, which was their team was hilarious. And when we anchor people to the aspiration instead of the goal, all of a sudden we able, we're, we're enabling our teams to use what makes them different, what makes them unique, right? So Lisa's team has grown, I think in that one year, they grew their social following 6,000%, their press mentions 7,000%. They hired a team for the first time dedicated solely to different channels on social. Like everything is going in the right direction for them. But it all came back to the fact that they looked at what everybody else was doing in their space and they just copied it. And until they were able to actually investigate their, themselves, that first variable of your context, they were just average. And that aspirational anchor, again, asking that question, what is my aspirational anchor, enabled their team to do something exceptional instead. Aspirational anchor, when you say that, can you just maybe elaborate a little more what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a statement to your team or to yourself or both that is about your behavior change to reach a goal. It's not necessarily a goal. So growing your Twitter handle 50%, that's a fine goal to have. But if you say, what's the behavior change we need to do that? Now you're like, oh, I don't, actually don't know. I have to investigate our situation a little bit more fervently. So, she, so in her case, it's we aspire to be... Let's be, yeah, let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. I see. And so when I tell that story in the book, it's really, let's set up the first question we should ask ourselves as investigators. It should be about ourselves. 
because we're the biggest missing piece in a best practice. So what is your aspirational anchor? In other words, what do you intend to have happen in the future? Okay, most of us get that. But what are you dissatisfied with today? Like, how do you have to change your behavior to go and get it? So for Lisa, let's show the world how fun and relevant we are. Fascinating. So in my case, you know, we try to create content um, at Social Media Examiner in every conceivable form that you can imagine that is of great value to our tribe. We try to be the trail guide for the social media marketer. Right. And um, I guess that our aspirational anchor would be like, um, let's be an awesome trail guide. <laughs> I don't know. Is that even possible? Is that even close? Well, I, I like that because it does articulate a behavior right? Like let's be the industry's greatest trail guide. What, what a guide does is a guide stands next to the individual where they're at and is like, I'm, I'm not all the way down the trail and telling you come over here. I'm going to take the next step ahead of you. And then I'm going to say, okay, cool. This is the right direction. Come with me. Yeah. I'm also going to maybe experiment and hack with my machete through the jungle all the way to the right. So you don't have to. So it, like you can start to see how your team's behavior can emulate a statement like that instead of simply a growth statistic or you know some kind of revenue number, all of which need to be part of it, but it doesn't actually articulate the behavior change and what you just said actually does. Yeah, and in, in this particular case, if we really are trail guides, then then we are trusted to make decisions that might not make sense intuitively, <laughs> right? But we know that there's a pack of bears around the corner with a baby there, you know, and we know that we're going to have to go this other route and people just, you better trust me. <laughs> well, and, and this is, this is one big reason why we can combat Pike syndrome because when, when we're, we're failing or Pike syndrome or cultural fluency, any of these psychological barriers, we can combat all this stuff by not sorting through the noise first, but by going inward, by looking at, okay, what does our team have to offer? So with that statement in mind, Mike, you might look at your team and be like, what makes these people really good guides? Right. And are we using that advantage fully? And by the way, if I hire someone new or this person leaves or we have a competitor, it's going to change because the people change. Right. And, and that's an important variable. That's the first thing we need to know, the first variable to make really good decisions. Is there any th anything else you want to mention before uh, we close this interview out? Well, I mean, a couple things. So number one is, this is not a book that has seven simple steps. The, the methodology of the book is six questions. And if you ask these questions, what I'm hoping people come away with is things like what you just came up with, where it's like, oh, okay, I actually know myself and my situation better. And so the thing I want to end on is just, I think, I think we were sold a lie when we entered the workforce, we were told, and I think it came out of the industrial age, that expertise makes for a great career or helps you build a great company. And today, few things are either blurrier because there's more answers and experts than ever, or more commoditized, commoditized that's the right word, it's, it's a commodity, uh, than expertise. Like knowing how to do the work is now completely table stakes because you can access that instantly and there's no excuse. But knowing how to do the work in your situation, that's the premium skill. So it's not expertise that makes the foundation of a great career or company. It's awareness. It's awareness of yourself and your team and awareness of your customer. And, and I think if we flip that script, all of a sudden, we don't have to panic read all these blog posts or you know, we don't have to squeeze the old playbook for incremental growth because we're going to be more pre proactive and make decisions that work for us, not work in general or on average. I love it.
Jay's brand new book is called Break the Wheel. Jay, tell everyone where they can get the book and where they can discover more about you and all this cool stuff you're doing with your documentaries. Sure. So jayaconzo.com slash book. I published a bunch of quotes, some some playlists actually for you writers out there, playlists for productivity, playlists I use to write the book, but jayaconzo.com slash book, or obviously it's on Amazon. Uh, spell it Conzo just in case anybody doesn't going to, they're probably going to get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> A-C-U-N-Z-O. Jay, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your experience with us. Uh, I know we're all better off as a result of it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope your brain wheels are turning a little bit and you're starting to think about some of the stuff that Jay and I spoke about. Something else to think about is Social Media Marketing World 2019. You like that transition? <laughs> Simply visit socialmediaworld19.com to get your ticket because you know you want to come. We've got an awesome section there to help you convince your boss if you need to be doing that. And by the way, if there's anything we mentioned in today's show, we take all the notes for you. Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash 333. Yes, it's the 333rd episode. Man, that's crazy. Hey, if you've been a listener for a long time, thank you so much for joining me. This brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your fast-talking host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world in a good way. See you next week. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner.